0: Well, hello everyone. My name is Dana Goldstein, and I'm your host for What Were You Thinking? a podcast that asks authors to share the story behind their story. Today, I'm speaking with Michelle Good, author of Five Little Indians. The novel braids together the stories of five residential school survivors whose lives each turn out quite differently. It's a fascinating look into life after release for these characters who have to navigate the world and have only each other to lean on. This conversation with Michelle packs a punch. We talk about a lot of different things. How long it took her to write the novel, her writing process, her commitment to reconciliation for indigenous people. Michelle is of Cree ancestry, a descendant of the Battle River Cree and a member of the Red Pheasant Cree Nation. She's a full-time lawyer, primarily advocating for residential school survivors. Join me as she answers the question, what were you thinking? Uh, Let's get right into it. I, I had read that your mother and your grandmother were their experience at the residential schools was the inspiration for
1: this book. Um, Can you speak to that? Well, it was partially the inspiration for the book. I mean, um, I am a survivor and people need to start to understand that, that even though I didn't attend, I am an intergenerational survivor because to suggest otherwise is to suggest that the school had no impact on my mother and the school had no impact on her mother. And we know that's not true. And so it plays out in the way parenting happens and so on. So, I mean, not to say anything negative about my mother, she was a force of nature and a wonderful, wonderful woman. Um, But my entire cohort, the only reason I didn't go to residential school was because my mother lost her status when she married my non-Indigenous father. She was rendered white. (laughs) technically legally she was no longer an indian and there is a part of me that believes that she you know sought out a marriage with a non-indigenous person because that was the only way she could protect her children um because if she married a non- or an indigenous man we would have all gone to residential school it was the law this is your first novel yeah and you it took
0: you nine years to write it. And now I you know you're you're 65 now, correct? In October. Yes. In October, you'll be 65. And you have your first novel and it's won more awards than I can even list in a reasonable amount of time.
1: Well, it has it it won as a finalist, but it's nominated for some pretty heavy duty prizes right now.
0: Yeah. Right. Whew. This list of nominations is long. She was a finalist for the Writers' Trust, long-listed for the Giller Prize, shortlisted for the Governor General Award, shortlisted for both the Amazon First Novel Award and the Kobo Emerging Writer Award. Other nominations include the Evergreen Award, the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize, the Indigenous Voices Award, and the Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. Y'all need to read this book. So, like, that's so beautifully inspirational to those of us, who started that part of our journey in life a little bit later. It's never too late. Why did it take you
1: nine years to write this book? Well, I went, uh, uh, I, I went into the MFA program specifically to write this book um, because I needed structure. I also needed to learn how. I didn't know how to write a novel. <laughs> and, um, uh, and I was practicing law full time while I was doing the MFA. Um, And I practiced law through when I graduated in 2014. Um, Plus, you know, there were a lot of other things going on. And I needed to be very confident that this story was being told in the way I intended it. And I didn't want to let my own inexperience (laughs) step in the way of that. And so it was fine with me to to take the necessary time.
0: I read that when you started writing this book, it was leaning towards
1: nonfiction. Is that correct? No, no, okay. no, I never, I specifically chose fiction. I never considered nonfiction fiction gives a writer a much greater latitude in terms of how you're going to tell that story, because you're not limited by facts. You're only limited by ideas and your ability to conceptualize and, um, And so that everything I know about residential school, I didn't need a factual reference. You know, I could just build on it for the purpose of the book.
0: What part of writing this particular book was the most challenging
1: for you? Oh, boy. I don't know that any of it was really difficult, really. I mean, there were times when it was emotionally difficult. Um, You know, when you're recounting... um, such horrific stories that you know are true, they may not be factual, but they're true, it can definitely have an emotional impact for sure. So that leads
0: me to my next question, which is, which character do you feel most emotionally connected to?
1: Oh, that's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I'm making you pick a favorite. (laughs) Well, I won't (laughs) because, you know, really they became like my kids. They really did. I developed such a, well, you know, I was with them for nine years and I developed such a strong maternal feeling towards them and no proper mother will articulate a favorite, (laughs) you know, and they all, they all have beautiful things about them. Clara and her, her refusal to give up and her, determination to do things her own way and Kenny and his profound loyalty in spite of his inability to stick around and Lucy with her willingness to you know to strive to become a nurse and at the same time hide away in her little house with her OCD issues and Howie with his kindness and and his 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 general sort of ability to be a wonderful human being they all had you know and Maisie tough as nails and not. They all had beautiful things about them, and I I love them. They're, like I say, they're like my kids.
0: What has some of the feedback been
1: from readers about the book? Well, you know, it's really been quite phenomenal, and and reader feedback is probably the most important thing to me um, because I want to know if I've touched people the way I intended to, and I have. It's, it's, I, people track me down on my website and send me emails thanking me for writing the book and, you know, one of them, some of them are just beautifully written, some of them are short and to the point, thank you for writing this, I just didn't know, but now I'll never forget. That was one reader comment that was sent to me. So many, like literally hundreds of readers that have reached out to me and said, that they've now gone through down a rabbit hole on Google, right, researching residential schools and deepening their understanding. And, you know, what more could I possibly ask for?
0: What line or scene in the book are you most proud of?
1: Oh, jeepers. (laughs) That's difficult. Um, I think the description of Kenny's death is something that was drawn from personal experience and uh, something that I think I was able to capture meaningfully his death and how he journeys partially to the other side for his four days of the four days that happened before you actually leave this realm in our way of believing.
0: Can you elaborate on that for people who have not yet read the book on the four days?
1: In our way of believing, at least in our, in my Cree way, um, Many and I know it's true with many, many different indigenous cultures, our belief is that you remain, your spirit remains in this realm, uh, if not in your body, for four days before you move on to the other side. And that's why we don't bury our people until that fifth day. And, and during that time, the purpose of that time is to give consideration to the things you've done and haven't done in this life on this earth and to make peace with yourself in that way before you move into the next realm that's quite beautiful yeah it is <laughs> what is your writing process i don't know i just sat down and wrote really and you know i i i'm just not as organized as a lot of writers you know where i get up at this time and i sit down and i write for 4 hours and you know 2 hours an hour whatever I write when the spirit moves me, and when the spirit moves me is the time to write because it just flows. And it's not easy because sometimes weeks and months go by where you're looking for just the right way to articulate something, but you're always writing. It's just not necessarily putting words on a page, it's steeping your concepts, steeping your ideas in your consciousness so that you can actually put the words to paper. What do you love about being a writer? Writing. (laughs) Um, You know, in my culture, learning and teaching is through story. You know, the whole world is a story. And you can take anything, like you can just pick anything and you can write an educational story about it. You can write a story that gives people an opportunity to broaden their understanding or their their capacity to feel something or to perceive it properly, virtually anything, pick any subject, you could write something fabulous about it. Did you grow up with some good storytellers? Oh, yeah, my both my parents were tremendous storytellers. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And, uh, um, and both of them were avid, avid readers. I remember my father used to read to us all the time. And so, you know, that whole uh, attachment to story started very early. What is the most challenging thing about being a writer? There's so much that's challenging about it. It's, uh, you know, I mean, we could we could talk about the the likelihood of getting your work published in the first place. You know, I when I first started thinking about submitting this to some publishers, you're looking at web pages and people are, you know, different publishing houses are you know, talking about getting a thousand manuscripts in a year, and they might publish 10, 12 books. I mean, the odds are against you right from the beginning, and everybody knows it. Okay, every writer knows it, that the odds are against them. You know, just that aspect of it, that you're being asked to, by yourself, um, you're being asked to put all this time and energy and resources and, you know, emotional resources, financial resources, and so on, into creating this book without any firm sense that it will see the light of day. That's very challenging. For me, one of the real challenges is to not sell my story short, right? That I get in a hurry, Uh, she says, taking nine years to write a book. (laughs) When you were writing Five Little Indians,
0: did you ever, were you concerned that you would not find a publisher? Did it even cross your mind that maybe this book would never see the light of day?
1: I never thought this book would see the light of day. Really? Um, yeah. I And while we're on that subject, um, when I won the HarperCollins UBC contest, I was convinced that this book would be perceived as a niche book and that it would, you know, have a respectable showing, but within a very specialized audience, if you will. I had no expectation that it would do what it's doing right now. Um it's mind-boggling, really, and so satisfying, right? Like, just so incredibly satisfying that that people are feeling moved to pick up this book and to finish it, and to take steps after reading the book, like to uh, to research more, to go read the Truth and Reconciliation Calls to Action or the report, to to deepen their own understanding, and that is incredibly satisfying.
0: What do you hope people will get out of reading
1: Five Little Indians. The answer to that ubiquitous and horrible question, why can't they just get over it? But for 150 years, everybody between the age of six and 16 was incarcerated in effect in these residential schools. So when people say to me, why can't they just get over it? My new question in response is, what are you asking them to forget?
0: Are you asking
1: them to forget that this whole legacy was a key implement in the Colonial Toolkit? Are you asking them to forget that there was wholesale rape and violence against little wee children? Are you asking them to forget that they're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and other psychological injuries? What exactly are you asking them to forget? And would you ask victims of the Holocaust? Would you ask victims of 9-11 why they can't just get over it? And no, you wouldn't. So how can we as a nation heal and move forward? Well, there can be no reconciliation without truth. I firmly believe in resurgence, in Indigenous resurgence and reconciliation. And we see that happening to some degree. I've been around long enough and working with Indigenous organizations and such long enough to know that there is progress. There is change from, you know, back in the 70s and so on settler Canadians need to understand that reconciliation is not a land acknowledgement. It's not an apology. As Maria Campbell said, we have a closet full of sorries. We don't need sorries. We need our land back. People don't understand what systemic racism or privilege is. They don't understand it. Your race wasn't something that you had to overcome in order to be even modestly successful in this life with indigenous people, that is so is that, you know, first we have to prove ourselves to be as good as white people.
0: I really appreciated how you treated the abuse and the rape and the the treatment of women in this book. It wasn't, it was mostly implied. Mm-hmm. Um. doesn't take a genius to figure out what's happening. I think I read that, was it Lucy who had who was told to wear her shirt tighter? I read that something similar happened to you.
1: Yeah, I was 13. I was in foster care and uh, I was out looking for work because that's me. And uh, And I went to this little restaurant to see if I could get a waitress job. And that's exactly what the guy said to me. So don't just, you know, pull your dress tighter around yourself so I can see what size uniform you'd wear. At 13. At 13, yeah. And that's another thing, too, that I think contributes to, to how these characters have been quite successful is because lots of these experiences I had myself. I was just aging out of foster care at the time that these kids were aging out of the red school. Or my characters were aging out of the Red School. So I lived in the Vancouver of that day. I'm sure that
0: there were a variety of characters that you could have created. So what were you thinking when you came up with, with these five?
1: Um, well, I started with Kenny. Kenny was my first character. I wrote one paragraph and I knew I need more. The reason that I needed more characters was because the purpose of this is to articulate the spectrum of harm that people experienced, as well as the spectrum of not so much the abuses, because that's not what the story is about. The story is about the challenges of living with the psychological injury, right? And, but in order to do that, I what I did was I created these characters just as not as characters, but as harms. So I would look at harms like uncontrollable rage, OCD, PTSD, anxiety disorders, you know, those kinds of things. And I gave those conditions, (laughs) I gave those psychological injuries to different characters or to the different characters. And then I asked myself now, how is this person going to evolve carrying these particular injuries? And that's how the, the story arc was developed for each character.
0: Yeah, it's an, an important consideration to figure out what happens after they, you know, these kids are released from
1: residential schools. Can they go back home? or are they just on the street? And the question of can they go back home? is, you know, a double-edged question because physically they might be able to make it there. But can you imagine, can anybody imagine, you know, being separated from your parents when you are six, sometimes younger? Um, I know of babies, 18 months old, three years old. I know of those for a fact that were taken into the residential schools. And then, you know, minimum 10 years later, what's the difference between a six-year-old and a 16-year-old? And all that time, you haven't been bonding with your parent. You haven't been growing and evolving your relationship with your parent or parents. And that family tapestry is unwoven. It's completely unwoven. And there's two examples in the book about kids trying to go home and it just doesn't, they just can't because it's not home anymore. But nowhere is home anymore. What's next for you? Hmm. Well, (laughs) good question. (laughs) Um, No, I'm working on another novel. Um, Not much lately because of the madness around this novel. Um, But again, it will be historical fiction. But this one goes further back in time. It goes back to 1885. uh, And it's loosely based on a fictionalized version of my great-grandmother. And it's about... There was, it's about clearing the plains, okay, about the colonial effort to wipe us off the plains completely so that it could be opened up to farmers and industry and other kinds of settlers and so on. I I,
0: I see the book behind you there. I noticed the book Clearing the Plains by James Dashak sitting on the credenza behind Michelle. This book, published in 2014, takes a very hard look at the death and subjugation of Canada's Indigenous people. This book has been called one of the most important books of the 21st century by the Literary Review of Canada. It's been on my to read list for a while, but I keep delaying it because I know it will crush me.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I love this book. It's so good. It's nonfiction, it's by James Bashick. And I recommend it to everybody. So put that in, don't edit that out. Everybody should read that book. It is a phenomenal history of that particular time. I'll probably dedicate my new book to James, but the story, my great-grandmother was born in 1856. I was born in 1956, which is an interesting sort of symmetry there. She she was in her late teens, maybe early twenties when she first saw a white person a non-Indigenous person. So she, in effect, lived a traditional lifestyle. It was already impacted by colonialism. She was at the so-called Frog Lake Massacre when Big Bear's war chiefs killed the Indian agent and a few other people up there after he had been starving them for weeks and months and things just blew up. And then my great-grandmother and the rest of my relatives in that band were hounded across the border into Montana I still have relatives at the Rocky Boy Reservation in Montana. And there was an amnesty after a period of time and they came back. They were put in a box card and they were brought back. And to this day, there is a band, a First Nations band in Alberta called the Montana Band of Cree. And that's where my, it's near Wetaskiwin, and that's where my great-grandmother was for a period of time when she had her two sons. She never lived in a house until she was 80. She lived in a tent through Alberta and Saskatchewan winters. My grandfather's like, look, I built you a cab and I built you a cab. And she's, no, it's unhealthy. It's unhealthy to sleep inside. Finally, she, uh, she relented when she was 80 and she passed away when she was 82. So, I am in this very, very, very challenging position of trying to see the world through her eyes.
0: When I asked this next question, I wasn't anticipating the response. Michelle's eyes filled with tears, and it took her quite a while to collect herself. I was going to edit it out, but I decided to leave the long silence. It was a wonderful moment. What would your mother have said about Five Little Indians? She would have cried.
1: when my mother was dying of cancer, there was nobody there at this particular moment that we shared together. It was just me and her. And um, (laughs) because she wasn't looking at me or speaking directly to me, but she said to the ether, if you will, somebody tell my story. So that's what I'm doing. It's a beautiful book. It's so emotional. <laughs> That's because I'm so emotional. But, you know, there is so much love in this book. And one of the things that I really wanted to convey is how these poor kids, you know, created community with each other. And how the deep loyalty and to each other and the protectiveness amongst each other, like in the relationship between Clara and Lucy, how much love is there between those two women and, uh, and Lucy and Kenny, who were just soulmates from the time they met as little wee kids in the res school. Right. And, and ultimately Howie and, and Clara at the end and Mariah's love the way Mariah, the healer expresses love through her healing and her medicine, spiritual and otherwise. And, and that's, something that I wanted not to balance the ugliness but because it's real right the the people that I know are that way I don't know how many times I've heard residential school survivors say but I forgive them and I don't know maybe now as I'm going into my dotage (laughs) maybe I could forgive too but I find that just so remarkable and beautiful. And uh, and so us, so the way we are. Thank you so much for
0: your time. Yeah, uh, congratulations you. on all the long laundry list of
1: nominations. It's so well-deserved. It just blows my mind, quite frankly. Yeah. I mean, and think about how I'm experiencing that when my feeling about this book was, oh yeah, it'll be a nice little book. It's a beautiful, beautiful book and everybody needs to read it. That's all I have to say. I'm very happy about it, and I, I hope everybody reads it. I really do. Oh, yeah. I hope so, too. Thank you so much for your time,
0: Michelle. Thanks for joining me on What Were You Thinking? You can get Five Little Indians wherever books are sold. To listen to more episodes or to have a peek at my own books, visit my website, danagoldstein.ca.